Okay, so uh, this is the last one of this One Another series, which I'll come back to in a moment. But before I do that, I just want to say that I hope you have heard God speaking to you through this series over the last few weeks. If you remember, we spent some time walking through the book of James in the late spring with its focus on not just saying what we believe, but really acting it out and living it as well in our daily lives. And that is absolutely key to the Christian life and discipleship and being church. And looking in this series at the one another's of the New Testament was designed to add a bit of flesh to the bones of what we looked at together in the letter of James. So let me ask you, as I start this morning, what do you think a community of people devoted to authentically living out their faith in Jesus should look like? What should it look like? And what we've seen over the last few weeks is that it looks like people who love one another deeply from the heart. It looks like people who forgive one another when they hurt one another, who serve one another, who connect with one another, who do life with one another. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, it says, be devoted to one another, honor one another above yourselves. Honour one another above yourselves, or as you might say, and as the title for this talk is, favour one another. Favour one another over yourselves. Well, let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for gathering us here today. It's been so good, Lord, to worship you, to come before you in praise, and to gather as your family, sitting in little bubbles of six. We're getting there, Lord. Thank you that normal church life just feels like it's on the horizon now. And as we come to look at your word together and complete this one another series, we ask, Lord, that you'll just fill this place. Fill this place, Lord. We invite you. We welcome you. As we look at your word, may we meet you, Lord, in your word today. And we pray it would do something deep in our hearts as we hear from you. May we not just hear from me, anything from me that's not from you, let it fall to the ground, Lord, but we want to hear from you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin by playing a little interactive game with you. I hope that's okay. Uh, I'm going to read out seven quotes and you have to say by raising a hand whether you think the quote is from the former United States President Donald Trump or from the football manager, Jose Mourinho. Now, if you don't know anything about football, let me just say that Mourinho is a successful football manager, really, but he's not really known for his humility and self-effacing quotes. So here we go. The first quote is this. The point is, you can never be too greedy. Okay, hands up if you think that's Trump. Hands up if you think it's Mourinho. There's lots of undecideds. No sitting on the fence here. It's actually Donald Trump, okay? (laughs) Next quote. The beauty of me is that I'm very rich. Hands up if you think that's Donald Trump. Okay, thank you. Hands up if you think that's Mourinho. It is, in fact, Donald Trump again. (laughs) 
Next quote. Maybe he should have an IQ test or go to a mental hospital or something. Okay, hands up if you think that's Donald Trump. Thank you. Hands up if you think it's Jose Mourinho. It is Jose Mourinho. <laughs> Speaking about one of his center halves. Um, right, next quote. My IQ is one of the highest and you all know it. Please don't feel so stupid or insecure. It's not your fault. <laughs> Hands up if you think that's Donald Trump. Thank you. Hands up if you think that's Jose Mourinho. It is, in fact, Donald Trump. <laughs> A few more. I think I'm actually humble. I think I'm much more humble than you would understand. Right. Hands up if you think it's Trump. Hands up if you think it's Mourinho. It's Donald Trump again. <laughs> Next one. God and after God, me. Okay, Trump or Mourinho? Trump, please, hands up. Mourinho? It's Jose Mourinho. And last quote. God must really think I'm a great guy. He must think that because otherwise he would not have given me so much. Hands up if you think that's uh, Donald Trump. Thank you. Hands up if you think it's Jose Mourinho. It's Jose Mourinho. Well, the ego has landed, eh? Uh, as we say, two men there who are really themselves very fond of their own opinion. And we live in a world where everybody has an opinion. And now with social media, everybody has a platform to put that opinion out there. Whether it's factually accurate or not has nothing to do with it. Whether it's going to hurt someone when you share that opinion doesn't really matter. We also live in a world that celebrates the relentless pursuit of fame and fortune and success. Uh, I don't know how many of you are fans of the TV show The Apprentice, but I think The Apprentice is the purest expression of this naked ambition, right? The latest advert for the upcoming series or present series features a contestant who says this, I have two goals in life, more money and more power, and nothing is going to get in my way. Doesn't matter if it means walking over others, doesn't matter if it means disposing of them, exterminating them, every obstacle to that person's goal of wealth and power must be ruthlessly eliminated. So whether it's friends or family or faith, all of it is unimportant compared to promoting myself and my interests, even if it means destroying everybody else. It is a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. And obviously that's really extreme, isn't it? And uh, that's why it's on TV, incidentally. It's survival of the fittest, though, is the way of the world. Uh, and it's against this backdrop of dog-eat-dog, -dog, survival of the fittest, that the church stands as a radical, countercultural, revolutionary movement. That's what Jesus designed it to be. See, God wants, in a dog-eat-dog -dog world, a community of people who esteem and honor one another above themselves. How radical is that? And perhaps the passage in the Bible that um, says this most powerfully 
and outlines it for us is in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read that in a moment. But before I do, are you sitting comfortably? Because I'm going to tell you a story. And it's a story that used to be told by the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard. See, I'm really putting it out there this morning. And Kierkegaard used to tell this story of a young prince who longed for a future wife and queen. And one day, this prince, on an errand for his father, he passed through a really poor neighborhood in a certain town, and he noticed there a young peasant girl whose beauty and fairness and purity stole his heart. And several times the prince uh, returned to that town in the hope of catching just a single glimpse of this young maiden. Without ever having said a word to her, he found himself falling irresistibly in love with her. And day and night, this young prince, his thoughts were consumed by this one question, how could he propose to her? He could, of course, as the king's son, simply order her to marry him. It was that kind of kingdom. But with a forced marriage, he would never be sure that her love for him was genuine, that it was returned. He wasn't interested in a, in a trophy queen. It had to be true love with this young girl or nothing. Well, at last he came up with a plan, you see. He threw off his royal robes, he took off his jeweled ring, and he disguised himself as a peasant. And he moved into the poorest parts of town and he lived with the local people. He adopted their accents and their customs. He shared their simple food and he worked with his bare hands for a modest wage. And in truth, it was, it was more than a disguise. It actually became a new identity for him. And he lived this way for three whole years, hoping he would get just one chance to meet this young woman of his dreams. Finally, they met. And to his great disappointment, it was not love at first sight on her part. So he courted her and he charmed her and he listened attentively to her and he amused her. He cooked for her and gradually he won her heart. Slowly she grew to love him deeply and all because he had first loved her. Well, it's a charming, happily ever after story. And uh, Kierkegaard used to tell this story to bring out the flavors and the emotions of Philippians 2, verses 11, sorry, 3 to 11. And here's what that passage says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus, just like that young prince in Søren Kierkegaard's story, emptied himself, became flesh and blood, and embraced the role of a simple domestic servant. He was laid when he was born in a borrowed manger. He preached when he grew up in a borrowed boat. He rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a borrowed donkey, and he was buried after he died in a borrowed tomb. And now we're told, in humility, value others above yourselves. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind that Jesus had when he came to earth. So that is the path that God has mapped out for you and for me. That is the pattern that our lives need to take as Christian disciples. It's a life totally turned away from the all-consuming pursuit of me and my interests. It's quite surprising, actually, how many popular Christian books you can buy these days with titles about finding true happiness here on earth, achieving personal success, or fulfilling your potential. And here are a few popular titles I noticed as I browsed online yesterday. This is on a Christian book website. So here are the titles. 20 ways to make every day better. Next title. You are stronger than you think. Discover the power to overcome your obstacles. Next one. Become a better you. Seven keys to improving your life every day. Next one, destined for the top, overcoming the issues that may hold you down. And this one, powerful attitudes for a successful life. I haven't read any of those books, and they might be, in truth, a lot better than their titles suggest. But it just doesn't sound very much like Jesus to me. Jesus asks, in contrast, what good is it for you to gain the whole world, meaning personal fulfillment, success, wealth, happiness, comfort. What good is it to gain all that and yet lose your very self? He says, whoever wants to save their life is going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will save it, will find it. He says, the first shall be last. He says, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How would that go down on The Apprentice? Those two last quotes. 
And verse 3 in Philippians 2 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others above yourselves. And the Apostle Paul who wrote those words, it's interesting looking at the trajectory of his life. He started out by describing himself in 1 Corinthians 15, an early letter, as the least of the apostles. And later on, uh, several years later, in Ephesians 3, he called himself less than the least of all God's people. So he's definitely going down the ranks. And finally, in one of his last letters, 1 Timothy chapter 1, he describes himself as the worst of sinners. And it's not that Paul got worse and worse as his life went on. It's simply that as he became more and more filled with the Holy Spirit, he became less and less full of himself. In humility, consider others above yourselves, he says. And I've noticed that humble people, really humble people, are pleased when other people around them do well. They're just free to be happy for them and to rejoice in their success. They don't compare themselves to high-performance people around them. They don't worry that they're not going to measure up. Humble people tend to be secure in who they are. Verse 3 urges us to be humble like Jesus. But verse 4 says to be generous like Jesus again. It says, not looking to your own interests, it says, but each of you to the interests of others. According to Nicky Gumbel of the Alpha Course, uh, he, uh, he lists some key words in the Bible. I haven't checked his maths, I haven't counted his arithmetic, but he says this, believe is used 272 times in the Bible. Pray, 371 times. Love 714 times. But give is 2,162 times. Generosity. Uh, when I was a boy, the kids in my school playground who, were, who shared their sweets with others, there were some who were really good at sharing sweets, others not so much. But the ones who shared their sweets were not only the most popular kids in the school, unsurprisingly, they were also curiously the most cheerful was it the same in your school I wonder giving people tend to be generous and joyful souls there's a social psychologist called Oliver James and he wrote a book a few years years ago called Affluenza Affluenza and in this book interesting book he said that 50% of people with incomes over £35,000 a year, feel they cannot afford to buy everything they need. And in fact, research shows that whatever your income is, and however much your bank account is in your bank account, people will always say they need about a third more of the income they have to live the way they think they should. Isn't that interesting? See, mammon, money, always says, you haven't got enough to give away. Store it up. Keep it for yourself. But God says, do not look to your own interests. 
but each of you to the interests of others. That is radically countercultural. The more you sow into others' lives, the more you will reap in your own life. That's the kingdom. That's how it works. Well, verses 5 to 8, which I read earlier, are up there with the most profound scriptures in the whole of the New Testament. And they focus on Jesus Christ's perfect obedience and his willingness to take a lowly status, which led to his ugly, harrowing death on the cross. But straight after that, talking about the cross and the shame of it, straight after that in verse 9, Paul says, therefore, God exalted him. And so the majestic glory of Jesus Christ is a direct consequence of him lowering himself, emptying himself and taking the form of a servant. This is why God has exalted him to the very highest place and given him the name that is above every name and every knee shall bow before him. Every name, everyone's going to confess his name. And Paul says our attitude should mirror that, being willing to be emptied, to lay down our lives. Uh, No act of kindness that you do, no loving word, that you speak, no extra mile that you walk, no generous gift that you offer, no hour of prayer that you set aside is ever insignificant or wasted in God's purposes. You always sow what you reap. The world says, You need to look after your own interests. Look after number one. Pursue money, for example. Well, Jay Gould, in the century before last, was an American multi-millionaire businessman. He was an investor, quite controversial man. He said on his deathbed, I suppose that I am the unhappiest and least satisfied man on earth. The world says... You need to pursue your own interests, look after your own interests, pursue pleasure. Well, the libertine Lord Byron was legendary for his excesses in wine, women and song. But in his later years, he admitted this, cirrhosis, syphilis and regret are mine alone. The world says, look after your own interests, pursue power. Back to The Apprentice. We used to live in Paris, some of you know that, in France. And um, in the Louvre, a huge museum in the centre of the city, there's a painting by Charles Lebrun called Alexander Entering Babylon. And it's a picture of Alexander the Great riding into yet another conquered city to a hero's welcome. It's a very detailed painting. He stands, Alexander, majestic in his chariot, And it's pulled by two elephants that he has captured off the Babylonians. Alexander is crowned with laurel leaves. He points authoritatively with his left hand. In his right hand, he holds a golden scepter. And there's trumpeters going ahead of him in the picture. They're announcing his arrival. Uh, Beside him, three men carry this very large golden vase, which is the spoils of war. 
And everything in this painting about Alexander the Great exalts him as impressive, as powerful. Alexander is known as the Great because of his spectacular success as a military commander. He never lost a single battle, Alexander. Uh, And even though uh, his armies were typically outnumbered, he never lost a battle. In fact, military academies throughout the world still teach his military tactics today. And it's said that Alexander would send heralds ahead of him into captured cities that he'd just conquered, proclaiming these words, I, Alexander, have conquered the world. Now I will conquer the stars. And legend says about Alexander the Great that he wept in his tent after entering India at the age of 29 because there were no more lands left to conquer. That's an insatiable appetite for power. But all human glory is just pathetic compared to that of Christ. Nobody compares with our Lord and Savior. You see, we love the excellence of Christ's glory, but all the more because it is mingled with his beautiful humility. We love the lion-like majesty of the Lord Jesus, but all the more because it is mingled with his lamb-like meekness. We love his sovereignty and dominion over all things, but all the more because it is clothed with obedience and submission to his Father's will. We love the way Jesus stumped the Pharisees with his amazing wisdom, but all the more because children loved him and understood him with his simplicity. We love Jesus' power and authority to calm storms with just one word, but all the more because he refused to use that power to come down from the cross because he stayed there for you and for me. Well, Alexander the Great, he died at the age of 32 of a fever. Probably, people think it's probably malaria. All that pomp and glory of that man, all his human grandeur taken down in just a few days by a little mosquito. While Jesus still leads the biggest movement the earth has ever seen and is still growing every day. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, there's those those words again, one another, have the same mindset, the same attitude as Christ Jesus Well, I want to finish this talk this morning and this series with a challenge that hopefully will make this personal to you, real for you in your experience. And I'm going to paraphrase a bit what Paul says in Philippians, and I'm going to invite you to personalize it by filling in the blanks with the name of somebody you find 
difficult. Think of someone you find difficult. It could be somebody in this church. It could be um, your spouse if you're married. It could be a parent or a child, a sibling, or some other relative. Someone who's deeply hurt you. It could be a friend. It could be your boss. It could be an employee. It could be a co-worker. Have a think about someone you find really difficult. And now let's make this a solemn commitment before God. The words are up on the screen. And you can just say them in your heart as I read them. Following Christ's example and by the Holy Spirit's enablement, I will reject self-seeking glory and vain pride and I will strive to humbly regard this person as more important than myself rather than constantly looking out for my own interests, I will also look out for the interests of this person. And this I say before God in this place. So help me, Lord. Amen.